Hey everyone, Abraham here. Just needed to let you know that around the 27 minute mark and for about seven minutes, we had some audio issues with our guest on this episode. It distorted the audio a bit. I did the best that I could to clean it up. Um, hopefully it's not too difficult to listen through, um, cut away as much as I could to make it sound all clean. Uh, the distortion did return a little bit toward the end, but um, not too bad. So just letting you know that that's what is going to be happening around that uh, about halfway through the episode. Thanks. You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Bam! All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. This is Abraham. And your co-host, Ryan O. Hey, this is our 100th episode, and we thought that was kind of a cool thing and wanted to celebrate that. And so we invited some other... I don't know, sister, brother podcasts. What's the what's the term there for <laughs> for those of us? They're they're also podcasters of like a similar genre and similar type. So they're joining us. So uh, let's introduce. And first, before we even do that, I would like to introduce or bring back maybe Drum one of our please. previous yeah co-hosts, someone that we uh, love and and miss, and we're so happy she's willing to join us for our one hundredth. It's Miranda. It's me. It's Miranda. I'm here. I've missed you all. <laughs> hey. Hey. <laughs> all right. Perfect. And so, and then we have uh, the the podcast ABA Inside Track. Uh, feel free to introduce yourselves. Hi there. I'm Rob from ABA Inside Track. Hey, it's Diana Perry Cruz from ABA Inside Track. And it's Jackie McDonald for ABA Inside Track. Oh, I didn't know we we're doing last names. I'm, I'm Robert Perry Cruz. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I just How want everyone unprofessional to my... of me, special guest today, and I'm such a non-pro. I You're just so... wanted everyone to know that my last name wasn't their last name. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good point. Very important information. We're so there. excited. Thank you guys for having us. Yes, this is a real, it's a real Thank treat to be on the 100th episode. Wow. Congratulations. I didn't know we would rate that uh, to join you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Woo-woo! Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's been a long journey. It's been a lot of fun. I feel like we are still kind of building momentum and getting things rolling and hopefully um, doing more and more stuff. So you guys have been, been doing, I feel like, a sort of similar podcast, more specific to behavior analysis, and mm-hmm. uh, but sometimes covering similar topics. And, uh, and so- yeah. I don't know. It made sense to have us all sort of join up and, and sort of. Uh, so anyway, I appreciate you being here. Yeah. Of course. Of course. We're Podcast unite. Podcast <laughs> unite. So what's what's slated for tonight's discussion? Right. So something that we've brought up a lot in various episodes, as well as ABA Inside Track, is some fad therapies. Uh, this largely is in the category of like pseudoscience type stuff. And so I think the purpose of today's discussion is largely to enumerate some of those fat therapies and uh, and describe them a little bit and just get an idea of sort of what's out there and I think it's important to start with sort of why we care about this so uh, what do you guys think what's why is it important to break down or, or even discuss these things well I mean I, I think certainly in in you know looking at kind of the, the the biggest problem is that you could have something dangerous a lot of these fat therapies I think people buy into them because they promise something really special is going to happen and it's only going to cost so much or it's going to happen so fast. And it's just really easy to get people to buy into them and then waste a lot of time that many times, especially if you're talking about fad therapies for children with autism, time they don't really have to waste. So, I mean, that's one of the biggest concerns is just the the, the lost time because you're usually you're doing the fad therapy rather than an evidence-based therapy. So that's a, that's a huge Huge concern when I hear about fat therapies. And it's at a time when, like, from my understanding with the parents that I've spoken with numerous times, like, you get hit, just, like, blindsided by this diagnosis, and you're like, I wasn't prepared for this whatsoever. So it would make sense that you're just looking for anything that sounds like it's something that will help, right? Absolutely. And uh, I think going into this conversation, we want to, first of all, say, like, we're not faulting parents at all mm-hmm. when they find themselves sort of in the murky waters of fat therapies because just like you said ryan like you get this diagnosis and what's the very first thing you do you go on the internet right you start looking at like what are the treatments for autism and if you type that in you get all sorts of stuff you don't necessarily get aba or other evidence-based practice you you start getting into some difficult territory pretty quickly so i think that that's a good place to start this conversation saying we, we understand how parents can find themselves here you're you're there because you're looking to do whatever you can 
for your child, right? And any of us would probably be in the same position. You just do whatever you can. But without a background in what are evidence-based treatments for autism, you might not very quickly discern what's going to be an effective treatment and what's one that could potentially be harmful. Right. And then we also find parents that have been in effective treatments for a while, but it's not moving as quickly as they'd hoped. That may turn then to fad treatments because of the promise. We've all done that, right? So we've all tried to lose weight. It's my classic example. And we're like, oh, diet and exercise. That works. But I could drink a shake in the morning, <laughs> work out for just 30 minutes a day with my friends, and then I would be like a girl boss, and then I'm going to be healthy forever. <laughs> Hashtag girl boss. Hashtag girl boss, right? We all know that doesn't work, right? Yeah. Well, it works It works for like one second. Um, and so similar, like if, similarly, if fad treatments, you know, we... They, they come about because we don't see a, like a lot of fast progress when we're using evidence-based practice. Yeah, I think it's a great point. And, and sort of to follow up on, on something that was said earlier, too, that even those people who are pretty skeptically minded, often well-informed and well-educated, when faced with something they're unfamiliar with, it, there's no real easy way to tell apart what's something that's evidence-based, what's legitimate from what, who's selling you something, a quick, easy fix. You know, um, and it, oftentimes in order to try and compete with those, um, I want to say, sort of sensational therapies, uh, you might have evidence-based procedures who are marketed in a similar way to try and catch people's attention, and it becomes even harder to tell them apart. And you can't fault right. them for that either. So, you know, I've known people who were good, skeptical, well-educated people that when something bad happened to them, they turned to something like essential oils and they're like oh i don't really know what to do with this cavity i'm going to take essential oils and maybe that will help mm -hmm. incidentally it will not but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> just, so, just so we're all on the on the same page with that and then the other thing that occurred to me too is the fact that these things pop up so quickly and there's so many of right. them and because they don't go through any kind of process it's just whoever's able to make up the greatest catchphrase and buy a website or you know, post on social media enough or get a celebrity behind them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Get right? some endorsements that, uh, that these things can just, they, they grow like weeds out of nothing. So right. that's, that's something else I think it's important. So can we start with, uh, Miranda riffing on this? Like, how do we start to even talk about science and like pseudoscience? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I think um, just real quick to add a couple of points, because Rob brought up a good point of that, you know, we're really concerned about this, particularly when it comes to vulnerable populations, because they can be dangerous. But um, everyone kind of also summarized how these things can get away of accessing evidence based treatment. And then I also think it's important to remember that it can oftentimes um, really impede clients dignity or individuals dignity, you know, these get in the way of them really being able to um, access that evidence-based treatment. And then also, you know, we'll get, we'll get into some, some, uh, therapies and procedures like facilitated communication. And you're really seeing, um, you know, a lack of person-centered, um, intervention there. So I just wanted to bring that up. But so real quick, when we're talking about pseudoscience and anti-science, and particularly when we're talking about it within the realm of autism treatment, Gina Green in 1996, um, a big uh, player within the field of behavior analysis, she had a really, really great summary um, where she talked about kind of the hallmarks of pseudoscience and anti-science. Um, and really what she kind of identified were that these treatments tend to claim that they can produce high levels of success quickly and across a variety of disorders. Um, that they really provide little to no objective data to support the effectiveness, but rather they tend to provide some sort of anecdotal evidence to demonstrate the procedure's effectiveness. Also, they state that other proven therapies are unnecessary or harmful or inferior, um, when really there's no actual objective proof to support these claims. Also, they state that the procedures would be difficult to evaluate using scientific methods, which is very convenient in a lot of ways, right? Mm -hmm. They tend to also use slogans that have face validity as a way to market their therapy. So these are kind of the things we can look for when we're really um, looking into these types of treatments. I was listening to Justin Leaf at uh, the Autism Partnership Foundation's conference uh, this Friday, like, I don't know, a few days ago. And he was bringing up the fact that a lot of them will talk about how they can't evaluate be with a scientific framework because, for example, everyone with autism is different. They're all each, they're unique. Snowflakes was the example that was given on one of them. And it was like, don't we all come with our own learning history and individual differences? Um, 
It's a very interesting thing that happens. We all know that science cannot study snowflakes because they are so individual. Well, and they melt they very melt. fast. Yeah. <laughs> Boom. They're very melty. They're. There's actually just just an episode recently on specifically radio uh, on Radio Lab that was specifically about studying snowflakes in science. <laughs> so that's I saw very that, good but timing. I haven't listened to it yet. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there was other elements to it because they usually do like a hundred stories, but that was yeah. part of it was talking about that. I thought that was interesting. Funny. <laughs> so we talked about the fact that many of us may easily fall victim to these sensationalized and super, I guess, I'll just say sham, you know, therapies that exist, and they they sort of come and go. They they flare up bright for a while. Sometimes they'll linger. Sometimes they'll come back. Um, but oftentimes they'll sort of flare up for a while and then go away. The ones that we're going to discuss today primarily have been around for a while. They I make mostly, their little cycles, yeah. Right? So they're yeah. like very popular, and then everyone's like, "No, they're the worst," and they go away for a little bit. But then there's like another flame. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, but uh, yeah, asking that question, sort of, why do why do we buy into these things at all? Why, why are someone likely to? And we sort of already spoken to a little bit the fact that they are, they focus their energy on PR stuff. You know, their big push is let's do some really good marketing, and that is a successful way to do it when they will demonize the other and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Right. But one thing you one thing you didn't talk about is the testimonial piece. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. So that is a huge selling point when you're talking about fad treatments is that testimonials because you may not mm-hmm. initially believe you're like, oh, that's probably junk science. Right. That's probably not even science. But then like over and over again, you might hear it from like your friend or your neighbor or somebody on Facebook and you might keep seeing it over and over again. And even though there's no science to believe in it um you know because of that repetition it may then seem more legitimate than uh, it reminds well it kind of reminds me of you, you when you're watching you know the movie trailers and you're watching the trailer and you're like this movie looks like garbage and they get that one review that's like most fun i've had all summer you know it <laughs> yeah. doesn't seem very hard if you have a treatment somebody will say something positive about it that is just enough puts just enough of that kernel of doubt into someone's mind of like, well, I know there's absolutely no research study behind this, but there is this positive review from somebody who sounds, you know, they have doctor in their title, (laughs) so they must know what they're talking about. Before and after videos are huge for these types of fad treatments, right? Yeah. And, you know, I've been slowly getting into like, how do we communicate science? And one of the things I've seen that's consistently showing up, and not that there's like a perfectly controlled study on this, but the stories of one person will reach farther than the stories of many, many, many people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if that was an intentional thing, if it's a known marketing strategy, like they know this marketing strategy works. But um, what's interesting is some of the, the people that are the ethical codes of people from these evidence-based uh, approaches, right, like are actually not allowed by their ethical code to be able to use those sort of testimonials, right? Right. Kind of That's creates right. this yeah. paradox. Yeah, I mean, and so some of the things that, that do they do say, and this is something Miranda said, so they tend to make these pretty grandiose claims. Um, they're usually inaccurate. They're usually misleading. Oftentimes, they're flat-out lies. Um, you know, things like this will work or this will cure whatever. Um, I used the example recently I, I've been enjoying as, as a hyperbolic example of it will bring you back from the dead. Um, <laughs> and then another one that they'll, they'll often bring into as well, and this this can go along with testimonials sometimes because all these things can kind of exist together. But one that uh, they'll do is they'll often try and, and give the excuse of like, well, you know, what's the harm? You, you may as well, if, if you believe it and you're wrong, then, uh, then nothing bad happens. But if you don't right. believe it and you're wrong, then you miss out on, on an opportunity during a critical area mm-hmm. to be successful. So that's yeah. sort of the, it's safer to believe than not to believe. True. Yeah. And yeah. humans do hate feeling like they missed out on something a lot more than they're happy like whoo good thing i didn't waste all that time that you know there's they'd rather they'd rather make sure that they didn't screw up and miss the treatment oh that was the one that was the magic treatment that was gonna cure my kid or make my you know brother uh learn to talk to people it's it's, it's really unfortunate yeah yeah Another reason that I found, and there was this whole website I found that had these really interesting ones that was one of the autism 
like resource websites. And I, I think we have mentioned autism a lot, and that's because a lot of us have worked or do work with individuals with an autism diagnosis. This is true really for any kind of diagnosis inside of mental health as well, oftentimes as with uh, medical diagnoses as well, and often also just life circumstances. Uh, we had one recently about how to cure immaturity, as if that were nice. something <laughs> that needs to be cured. You get so, a job, just I say, think, like, right? Give it time. Right, yeah. <laughs> so My fit. My favorite fad treatment from the real world is amber necklaces when you put them on your chil- their children to cure teething. Wow. <laughs> That's yeah, my favorite. It's really popular. And it's super fact. popular. It's a problem. Do you know how many problem. of those necklaces they've probably sold? And how many beaches they got to go visit because of but those you ha- Yeah, <laughs> so you, have to ma- you have so many. You have to make sure because it has to be pure amber. Okay. Wow. Because well, it's otherwise, it's hard it, to get pure amber. But right. But the problem is that they're tiny little beads, and they those necklaces can break, and the beads are a choking hazard. Right. Or and the babies wear like the teething age babies. Yeah. Or the babies wear them to bed, and then they just yeah. get choked to death. So don't wear don't Jesus. wear the necklaces. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. So the cure for teething is to kill your child, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that that will stop the teething, but yeah. Yeah, but so many. That's grim. I see yeah. them a lot yeah. around. I see yeah. them a lot too, and it kills me. I just want to like rip them off when I see them at stores. <laughs> now yeah. you guys will notice them too. Yeah. Yeah. Now you've got me <laughs> Thank all heightened you. awareness. Right? And nothing makes parents want to listen to you more than being yelled at by a stranger. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you change people's minds. Like, what are you doing, yeah. moron? Until now, you thought they were just trying to make their baby look cool. It's like yeah. a surfer necklace. <laughs> but no. <laughs> yeah. Um, another thing is that um, oftentimes when they pitch these things, they will frame them in such a way that they uh, they appeal to the majority of people. So they'll try and f- and fit their fad treatment inside of someone's pre-existing sort of worldviews and thoughts about things. And so it's often hard for... It, it immediately appeals to them because it sounds like things they already know and believe. And especially when they use these ambiguous, vague terms, it's sort of like, oh, oh yeah, that, that, sound, that sounds reasonable. And I mean, this is the cold reading thing from... Like uh, from psychics, you know, when they do their cold mm-hmm. readings, they'll they'll say something just vague enough to get you to, you to volunteer information, and then it's like they knew it all along when really you told them the answer. Mm-hmm. So there is the the effect that sometimes you will notice or feel like you'll notice changes that occur when taking or experiencing a fad treatment because maybe something changed and so you're like more sensitive to actually observing that a change took place or sort of hoping or expecting to see one you also might get some kind of placebo effect out of it um if you're using any kind of real fat fat therapy like there might be some sort of shift that happens and it's just enough to make you think oh this this seems to be working it seems to be doing what it's supposed to be doing and that's just enough to um to make it seem like it is working and then there also sometimes is the case that like they're already getting effective treatment and so they're already improving and so then you slap in a fad therapy in the middle of their improving and they Mm -hmm. continue to improve and it's not like the fad therapy didn't actually do anything but they were still getting better so it looks like they got better after taking the fad therapy and they did but not because of it oh yeah try to tell a family who's starting to see uh you know, a change in sort of like the, the challenging behavior of their child with with an autism diagnosis when you've been doing ABA for, you know, a year and a half. And then they just suddenly switch to like a fad diet or they put on the I don't know what, what you know, the, the periwinkle necklace or whatever. Yeah. He- they started hypotherapy too. try telling them, well, maybe we should do a component analysis and see which of these things really made a difference. And they're like, no, 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 it's all great. It's all great. I love it all. It was all super effective. It's all equally the most special treatment ever. And you're just not gonna. You're just not gonna be able to convince them that maybe you don't need to be spending all the money on all the treatments. Yeah, one of these things doesn't belong. Yeah. <laughs> there was a good article on CNN uh, just yesterday, I think, about uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's company Goop. Have you guys yeah. heard of that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they had a, a health conference called Indigoop Health Ooh. in New York really recently, and a bunch of bunch of bunch of rich people went to it. But they're, what they are doing is like. B12 shots and things that are really have no basis in science. And the article was about how if there's any effect of these things, it's from a placebo effect, but that's enough to keep people going there. So, like, mm. we should expect these types of trends to continue, even though Gwyneth Paltrow does not know what she's talking she about. She was in Shakespeare in Love, Diana. That's a great yeah, movie. Yeah, I know, Just Rob, a great it was. Academy it was great. Award winning film. I know, they got in the canoe. Yeah. 
So on the there you go. on the topic of uh, like celebrities or big status or whatever sort of people getting behind these sort of things, at the Autism Partnership Foundation conference that I mentioned, I was at Dara. I will not pretend to even know how to announce his last name, but the CEO currently of uh, Uber was presenting there because he has had uh, solely and specifically just ABA or evidence-based treatment to help out his kids. And it was, I think, really cool to see someone on a different, from a different angle there, right? Like champion this. It's not going to be a quick fix. It's going to be a lot of work. And if you use something as evidence-based, like you, to an extent, know what you're going to get out of that, right? Like you don't know the exact um, day-to-day what things are going to be like, but you know the trajectory and you're like, you know where you're going to start going when it comes to the scope and sequence and like what to start targeting. You announced his last name very well. I don't know how you'd, how you'd pronounce it though. Um, so there are, let, let's go ahead and actually specific. <laughs> sorry. I tried to keep it straight. Snark malark. <laughs> so let's go ahead and start throwing some fad therapies under the bus. Um, we can start with, and we can sort of run through a list and sort of describe what they are. And let's kick this first one off. Uh, we got on the, on the docket here, facilitated communication. Otherwise known as rapid prompting method. That is the new fancy updated new and improved quote-unquote version of facilitated communication not dissimilar at all from a ouija board or clever hans clep what's clever hans oh, Rob. <laughs> the horse. we'll tell horse? we'll tell oh, Rob oh, that okay, later. okay okay yeah, okay. I, okay i know okay. the horse i know the counting horse i didn't know he had a name okay <laughs> yeah not mr ed okay. not mr ed mr ed could talk come on <laughs> <laughs> So when when you had ABA inside track, want to take on the facilitated communication? Oh, yeah, I, I, real this... quick, um, mm-hmm. it's also now being called spelling to communicate oh, is one of the most God. recent Ooh. things. Okay, uh, and this comes off of the UN discussion that just happened on this topic. Okay, thank you. They have to rebrand yeah. again. Wow. <laughs> well, it's, they've it's, got when, to different well, people. Yeah, when too. you've got something that doesn't work and is total crap, you gotta you gotta rebrand frequently as people catch on. It might be a right. product, a service, a tool. Like I don't know exactly. It might be someone like using the same thing. So I don't know if it's the method is totally shifting or if that was just a type that's been marketed a lot lately. Okay. Um, but yeah, sure. go yeah. ahead. Take it. T- take yeah. it away, Rob. So uh, and the rap the, the weird thing is is the facilitated communication it, even though it is the same kind of brand of fad treatment the rapid prompting it's it's a totally different lady who who I don't I don't I don't remember her story I remember reading it somewhere a couple of years back how she kind of she saw it being used and then she started using it and I can't I can't remember her name but uh, when we talk about facilitated oh. communication uh, we're usually talking about what's his name uh, Douglas. Douglas Bicklin, I think, was the 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 proponent of facilitated communication, uh, and I I I remember this being. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, he, he was the one who brought it to the states. Is that correct? Because there was someone yep. who like started it in I think Australia, and Denmark. Then, uh, well, it was Australia and Denmark. So mm-hmm. this has kind of moved okay. throughout. I thought it was a, a late eighties, early nineties phenomenon, but apparently it had been. Uh, popular for a little bit in uh, Australia and then moved into Denmark in like the 60s even, but they didn't have any evidence. So it sort of fell out of favor pretty quickly. And then all of a sudden in the 80s, uh, Douglas Bicklin had decided, you know, this seemed like it worked really well with the observations he'd had. So let's bring it to America. And even with, you know, over 400 studies by the early 90s showing this doesn't do anything, it still seemed like it was gaining a lot of momentum. I think Sy- it was a Syracuse University. They had mm-hmm. a whole school for facilitated communication. Wow. Um, anyone who wants to learn about it, I remember seeing this in grad school. I think you could find it on YouTube. There's a great frontline piece, Prisoners of Silence, which is is amazing to show. Like I've shown this to trainee groups. Like uh, I've shown this to behavior therapists before. Uh, when I need to, you know, fill a fill a training, I didn't know I had to do until the day of. You know, we watch Prisoners of Silence because it's just so amazing that something could have taken a you know group people with disabilities by storm. This idea that oh, if I get a board. You know, and you know there's something wrong because it's it could be a computer or a screen or a piece of paper or a Ouija board that you've sort of repurposed. And you pretty much just have a facilitator who sits sits next to the individual who has never been able to communicate vocally, possibly never even communicate using assistive technology. And they hold their hand and they kind of, you know, according to the science, the quote unquote science, they kind of just 
you know, feel what they're trying to spell and they sort of help them by moving their hand. The thought being that, oh, well, the, the issue is that they have all the individual has all these things they want to say, but they they can't you know produce the sounds and they maybe have a disability that keeps their motor movements from being precise enough to type or spell. So with this other person there, they'll be able to sort of you know bridge that gap and allow them to do all this all this talking all of a sudden. So it's and they also I've I've gone to a facilitated communication panel before and when you pose questions they say it has to be about the relationship between the facilitator uh, and the client. So that's why there hasn't been a lot of research. Uh, that has shown that facilitated communication works because they're typically using experimenters and clients and there's no relationship there so that that's why it doesn't work oh. obviously oh. that's not true but yeah. that's that's how they that's how they say like oh yeah there has been research done but of course it's not right because they haven't used an actual commu a facilitated communicator i think that they have used actual faci they have. the facilitators yeah. and failed spectacularly so yeah and this is something we, we have mentioned before and like i said we're planning to do a full-length treatment of this whole topic and honestly i don't care how many times we say it because it's really important this was something that it promised a ridiculous amount of hope and utterly yeah. failed the people it was supposed to be serving and it took them from having potentially the opportunity to communicate effectively to not having that same opportunity because so much time was wasted on this um, this completely bunk hypothesis that's based on nothing. I don't. I, I don't even understand how one would hypothesize that you take someone who has never engaged in language and magically overnight they spontaneously develop a robust language. It'd be like well, it's it's just thought that it's this inner thing that needs to be unlocked, yeah. man. Yeah, yeah but it's I mean, unlocked. it's But it's like it, it, that's like saying that you actually know like Swahili. You've just never heard it before. And so if I start speaking Swahili to you, you will like get it instantly. That's never happened to anybody in the history of the planet. That's, that's my Jungian archetype though, right? I, th I thought that's how we went, right? <laughs> it um, might be like me watching Spanish soap operas all yeah. day and then thinking you can speak I Spanish. Speak Spanish when I yeah. haven't had the opportunity to experience the contingencies. Right. I, I'm assuming there's a, a great deal of uh, what most people talk about is nonverbal communication of like you interacting with your child back and forth right right and yeah. you those things where it's like you know what they're going to request not because they're vocalizing it but because it's this thing this routine that you get into or like mm -hmm. there's there's certain conditions which usually set the 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 reason for them to you know lead you to the kitchen to ask for that certain thing or point to something or whatever it is and i feel like those things happen right for years and years and years to where like you feel like there's this vocabulary there that's how I've tried to understand, like, right, like there's this all this buildup of these interactions that these parents experience where it kind of sets the conditions for like, yeah, he should be or she should be able to yeah. talk. Right. But it gets to be much worse in the fact that when they do start uh, facilitating, you know, language, it comes out to be completely different than like just wants and needs. Right. So then they're right. whole talking about a whole other life, like things that they love. And now that they're all, they always come back to the I haven't been able to speak. And now I can tell you all my words. And they're usually brilliant artists. Yeah, it reads like poetry. And they have poetry right. and they can they're great. You know, like they have this this hidden, hidden, like magical potential that you know they could never unlock and with with all of the cases that i've witnessed with facilitated communication it's that it's not like they're saying oh i want a cookie it's usually like yeah. now that i can talk to you i want to tell you about the depths of my soul mm -hmm. right yeah and that's ex that's exactly what i was gonna say is there is a difference between this idea of there is some of that nonverbal nonverbal communication you'll pick up even in a language you don't speak or from someone who has some kind of disability that has prevented them from acquiring a comprehensive uh, language repertoire and or if you're watching a, a show in another language and you might pick up a few words and phrases and ideas that you can maybe even communicate a little bit to what's happening in facilitated communication where they're churning out like these completely intact with uh, idioms and with like certain phrases that are unique to their circumstance and their culture that are incidentally the ones that the facilitator had coming into that relationship like there is there's a difference between those two things because you're right that there's some amount of communication that takes place that's not just with respect to that language but it's not nearly at the level of what happens from someone who has a fully intact and comprehensive language repertoire and i think just what I mentioned earlier, and, and I think it's important to bring about is, you know, um, 
again, it's it's really there's a lack of respect and dignity for these individuals when you're having a facilitator who's putting these really profound words in their mouth, so to speak. And, you know, there's a lot of danger as well. I mean, there's been accounts of facilitators essentially facilitating abuse of these individuals through the use of facilitated communication. Um, one case in particular, I believe 2017. Do you guys remember the college with the professor? We could search. Give us a couple. No, just give us a couple terms real quick, and we'll slam on the keyboard. I know Wikipedia has a has an exhaustive list. I, I really thought these cases had sort of dried up since the nineties. No, but it's th- they keep going. It's, yeah. So um, this was a case where a professor at a college had actually facilitated a romantic relationship with a nonverbal, nonverbal, mobilely, mobily impaired individual um, as their facilitator, utilizing facilitated communication and obtained um, consent for a sexual relationship. And this was later um, deemed to not have been actual um, consent that he gave because she had facilitated the communication and it was clear that he was not actually communicating on his behalf. Um, and yeah. there's countless stories like this. And yeah, that so. should get you a one way ticket to just rotten hell. Yeah, <laughs> essentially. All right. <laughs> so uh, in the interest of because we, we have a few things to cover and want to make sure we give all of them some amount of discussion. Let's go ahead and move into our next one, which was sensory integration therapy. Yes, yeah, sensory integration. So uh, this is certainly individuals who've worked uh, in uh, schools for a long time or have worked with a lot of uh, occupational therapists. There, there are plenty of excellent, excellent occupational therapists out there, but I'm sure we've all had one or two that feels that they could use a treatment like sensory integration therapy to be a component of you know, engaging, helping a child with engaging in challenging behavior, decrease those rates of challenging behavior. Get yourself a sensory diet, man. Oh, sensory diet. Sensory. Uh, kind of the weighted vest kind of falls into this category. And it really all yeah. comes from work from the early 70s by uh, by Ayers, which kind of set up the whole idea of sensory integration, that idea that, you know, we, you know, our brains organize all the sensory input that we take in from the environment and that potentially if someone has an impairment in how their brain integrates all this information, well, they're going to have a lot of difficulty with purposeful behavior. Now, again, we're not talking challenging behavior necessarily, more just a difficulty with engaging in purposeful behavior. So really, that's almost anything, you know, any movement in the environment, pretty much. And by setting up a therapy where you have these just right challenge of sensory activities, then uh, you can kind of teach the child to engage in an adaptive response. So sort of kind of almost like the idea of rewiring the brain through these activities in the environment. So I could see why maybe a person with a disability, you know, they're they're their brains somehow function differently or they're firing neurons are firing differently. So maybe certain activities might engage the brain, which is, you know, has that plasticity and uh, allow them to, I don't know, make new pathways or whatever. So you could see how maybe there's a, there's a, a hypothesis behind this treatment. However, the issue and kind of where it became a fad treatment is that these activities just sort of continually became recommended more and more, I think, for children with lots of different disabilities, not just a motor impairment, but a lot of times children with autism. So by engaging in the right amount of physical movement or by having, you know, a weighted vest or this diet of activities, you're going to change their rates of challenging behavior. So while I think there are things to be said about sensory integration therapy as maybe, you know, activities that might serve a purpose, the purpose which they're purporting to serve really doesn't play out in any of the research. A lot of times you'll see like the brush and joint technique is one. You'll see these things actually increasing rates of challenging behavior rather than decreasing rates of challenging behavior. So it's sort of a hypothesis and a treatment that is being used to treat a behavior problem that uh, really has no business being involved, involved in. This is similar to when we talked about the animal assisted therapy and what and one of the things is like we all like the the idea of an enriched environment is a perfectly legitimate idea. Yeah. And having this uh, this place where it's like fun and you get to do all this stuff is, is a great thing. It's confusing the concept of like that reward or that reinforcer for treatment itself. Mm-hmm. And like if the if you're using M&Ms as a reward to teach gradual improvements in skill, the solution isn't well if the M&Ms working dunk my kid's head in a bowl of M&Ms. You know, the (laughs) I mean, maybe, but probably not. Um, But the uh, but but the fact that you are using in a very strategic and specific way. 
I talk with uh, a variety of professionals now and then, and one of them that comes up, and one thing that I feel like is relevant to this is that if you're changing, say you're going to implement some sort of diet like this, right? Or you're going to add some sort of component like this. We know from other areas of research, for example, that if you add a good legitimate practice opportunities just by happen chance, right? Like you can see some sort of impacts here. So as an example, we talk about the learn unit and behavior analysis. It's kind of this packaged, clear, um, no, like practice trial where you have something presented to you, you do it, you get some sort of feedback and that kind of loop continues over and over again. So if I wasn't doing anything and I just happened to package some sort of thing together like something like this and it, it just happens to fit this format where I'm giving some sort of feedback, like you're saying for some motor activities or whatever, sure, it might produce some sort of effects if it does, right? I'm just like on a hypothetical train here. Um, but it's not even for the reasons that you're originally thinking about it. And I think that's how some of these people get trapped in there where like you implement something that you aren't sure if it's going to work as a practitioner, saying, I'm going to try this sort of thing out, like a sensory integration. And the very fact of adding something in creates some sort of change, whether it's therapeutic or not, that change is what's then captured that practitioner into that loop of like, I'm going to keep doing this. Does that make sense? And that's that's actually, I think, one of the, that's going to be common across a lot of fad therapies as well yeah and like so the discussions i get into usually is just trying to talk with people and trying to understand like when you add or remove things or even tracking what that is like like that's a, i think a basic core thing that could maybe be disseminated a lot more when it comes to grad programs of all sorts of types of like really track what you're adding and removing when it comes to your programming because usually like this stuff's just thrown up and like you know added and removed and like there's it's like it's like as if a doctor was just like prescribing you a different amount of the medication, different medications every day. You never know what the hell's going on, right? Yeah. Right, and that's exactly what the more Cividiti Moda Clark and Ahern in 2015 did. They actually systematically uh, added and removed different types of uh, items that have been put into a sensory diet. So the lead author there, Kira, actually went to a brushing workshop and became um, certified in brushing uh, to do this type of, of work. And they actually found that stereotypy got worse wow. following following these sensor integrations. So that's a really great article. Uh, it was published in Behavioral Interventions, if, if you guys want to look that one up. Yeah, I think there's cool. this, essentially, I think there's this reinforcement trap that starts to happen where it's like, and it might be superstitious and totally bunk, but like, I think that's what's going on. So if anyone's out there like, but I've done X, Y, or Z, like, just think about like, kind of shifting, like, what did you add? And like, what effects did that have? The funny thing about, uh, just really quick uh, on, on sensory integration, the funny thing is that if you look in journals of occupational therapy, the journals all say sensory integration therapy is there's no evidence base for it to be used as a treatment for challenging behavior with kids with autism. You need to, be, you know, proceed with caution. You need to be collecting data before and after the implementation of implementation of treatment. Same with things like weighted vests. So there, there is a whole, you know, all these statements from the, you know, the, the organizations that you would think would be supporting this treatment, yet somehow it still stays out there that sensory diet is a key treatment. I'll see it in reports that, you know, like PhD level professionals will be writing of, oh, you need to be looking at the sensory diet as part of the, the treatment package. And I'm like, where are they getting these ideas? Because the occupational therapy journals don't even support this as an evidence-based treatment. So I have no idea how this just keeps coming up after all these years. Yeah. As a fun side note, for me, I was in an IEP when I was a young young BCBA and someone brought up the sensory diet. And I'm like, they're getting free lunch? Like, I had no idea what they were talking about. And then afterward, I'm like, how come I'm not getting free lunch? Like, how do you get free lunch? And they're like... Nope, Jackie, that's nope. not at all what they did. Sounds like some mindful eating <laughs> yeah. sensory diet. I was like, mm -hmm. cool, free lunch. <laughs> nope. So the next one is uh, this notion of the vaccine autism hypothesis that's been around. Um, we'll keep this one relatively brief. So just really quickly, uh, do vaccines cause autism? No. no. Okay, thank you. Um, so real quick summary on this. This has been a hypothesis for a little while. Um, in 1996, there was formally a study published on this that was ended up being debunked and discredited and is an example of unethical, unethical behavior uh, from a researcher and has spawned an enormous amount of problems that have come with this as, uh, at the time of this recording is a measles outbreak in the United States that has oh. ha had uh, serious implications. 
328 cases for 2019 alone. Wow. And in 2017, there was only 120 cases of measles. Yeah, we're in and the this era, is wow. we're in the era of opinions and capitalism coming together. And it this is, is one of those believable. Yeah, and this is one of those things where measles is extremely, extremely contagious and has no cure. So vaccines are our only guard against this disease. The book Autism's False Prophets yeah. by Paul Offit is a really excellent review of the whole Wakefield saga before, during, and after and, and the effects that it's had. Have y'all followed the uh, Amazon ripping some of the, the anti-vax books off the market? And yeah. videos yeah, from yeah. the crime store. And YouTube, store. right? Yeah. YouTube, yeah. Too, No, no, there's like a, something going around there's, YouTube. I don't know if they've done it yet. There's some stuff, yeah. Essentially, there's talk about how much role do these platforms play in having uh, the moral, ethical responsibility to be able to like vet these sort of things. And I get why they don't. Yeah. And and most laws actually state like unanimously that it's not their problem to deal with the content that's on there. They just provide it. But I think the take-home here is that it's usually dependent on your values, whether or not you even get in these conversations in the first place. Like you saw, as soon as they talked about removing those sort of things from Amazon, there was this huge spike in the number of videos on YouTube that people were putting out there about how uh, this link is still there so that they could just market more of their materials. I don't know how you're ever going to stop this sort of thing, to be honest, um, because it, it comes down to this like moral value discussion of like, do you value a scientific understanding of this or do you value you know this other side? I mean, you just you got to have the, the people who are willing to have this conversation and say, this is what's going on, because it's just it's dangerous. It's a dangerous lie that vaccines have uh, cause autism or any other number of mental health problems. They just don't. They the one thing they do is mostly protect you from extremely deadly and contagious diseases and they don't cause any other problems. Yeah. Ready to move on? Yeah, sorry. We oh, solved yeah. that uh, perfect. problem. Yeah. Okay. All right, so let's go after. This is a very interesting one. So this is called a hyperbaric oxygen chambers. Isn't that a Michael Jackson thing? <laughs> Was that? No. Too soon, Rob. Oh, Too sorry. Soon. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Actually, in in the early two thousands, Montel Williams. Do you remember him? His talk show show yeah. show host. He yeah, didn't. Man. He did an entire show on people that had success right i'm putting air quotes up you can't see it uh for children using the hyperbaric oxygen chamber and it was an entire show and it was just testimonial after testimonial and Uh. video after video and the sad thing was that the people in the video actually didn't look like they got better yeah the ones i've watched the the kids didn't look that they didn't look that great no uh, and then hyperbaric oxygen chambers, I always thought it was like a giant like room where the oxygen, the O2 saturation was higher, but it's not. It's like a smallish bassinet type thing. Mm-hmm. Isn't it, isn't uh, it you can grab- like the one on Deadpool that they keep him in, that like little glass <laughs> container? <laughs> I didn't see that. Oh. It's the second yeah. time today I've been yeah. reminded that I haven't seen Deadpool. Me too, Diana. So we have it. If you want to watch Deadpool, Diana, we have. We can watch it after this recording. It's a, okay. it's a fabulous movie. I have to go, actually, guys. <laughs> I, I endorse it 100%. <laughs> for what it's worth <laughs> yeah so so the idea is that you go in this little chamber and they they pump up the oxygen so it's at a higher level than the regular drinking air and you stay in there for an hour or two and it helps to wake up your brain and make extra connections and you're supposed to come out and be able to talk better and interact more and be more socially engaged and there's been some but research on this right yeah. There's been some research uh, not done by the folks who were proponents of HBOT, but by some behavior analysts. I think it was Lerman. Yep. Yep. Lerman and colleagues took a look at this, and they, they did a comparison uh, with having kids who were experiencing this type of therapy and then a period of time where they weren't, and they measured some really clear behavioral social measures, and they didn't actually see a difference. Right. It's and a this short version. Is, you can find that in behavior analysis and practice. It's Lerman and colleagues, 2008. Perfect. There we go. Yeah. All right. Next, we have gluten-free, casein-free diets. This is a real diet oh. this time. It's a real diet. And this Free lunch. Gets <laughs> not very, not lunch, very good though? lunch. Yeah. <laughs> right. So this one is pretty controversial, I will have to say. We've gotten, we've gotten some listener feedback uh, when, we've, when we've talked about this for, for more than a few seconds. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, this. there are a lot of people out there in the world who could have a variety of diagnoses or no diagnoses at all, other than the fact that they have a gluten 
insensitivity or intolerance or have celiac disease or have a milk allergy or are lactose intolerant, right? So there's all spectrum of variations of intolerance that you could have to both gluten and or to wheat. Uh, sorry, gluten is in wheat and casein is in milk. So to wheat or milk. Uh, and that should be absolutely respected no matter what, no matter where you come from, right? So if you if these things hurt your tummy, then you shouldn't have them. <laughs> and that should be viewed as separate than uh, individuals who are receiving a gluten-free, casein-free diet with the expectation that that diet is going to reduce their overall symptomatology of autism. So I was at um, I was a training. I've been in the, the process for potentially having uh, foster children. And I was at a, a training cool. for this specifically, and one of the people who was quote unquote leading the training got up and they mentioned how they had had a foster child that was that had an autism diagnosis, and how when they switched her to a gluten free casein free diet just changed her life. It was like went from not communicating to communicating, from having problem behavior to having no problem behavior, and it was. It was so hard for me to sit in that class and just listen to this. And I mean, that's that's a perfect example of a testimonial right there. But yeah. I was more concerned because they were talking to a room full of people who were planning to foster and adopt children, telling right. them that that was the kind of therapy you use to deal with children with autism. And I'm, I just, I uh, I left them a a not very nice review. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> it's so hard to, and you don't want to discredit that person's experience, right? Right. Like for Good them, point. something changed. And they, they found validity in it. However, the research overall doesn't really support the, the diet in and of itself. Now, that can also or should also be separated as well from the fact that eating better food can make you feel better, right? And could, I don't know, maybe have a change in your behavior. I'm not really sure that's true either. But the, the, the challenge here is separating out. Oh, I've been eating a bunch of junk that happened to have a lot of gluten in it, and now I switched over to a diet that's full of, you know, delicious fruits and vegetables and and low low fat proteins, and and now I I feel on top of the world, right? Right. Like that shouldn't be the distinction either. So, I always tell families like, eat healthy. I'm not trying to steer you away from eating healthy, but if you're expecting that just removing these few proteins from the diet is going to produce a behavioral change, I'm worried that you're going to get your hopes up. Right. And, uh, you know that. A lot of people are going to push back on, on this statement and say that, no, for them, it really, really worked. And I, I don't want to dis discredit what their personal experience was. So I say, if it's not harmful, then I guess you could try it. But these foods are overall quite expensive and can end up further limiting a child's diet who perhaps already would be self-limiting in their diet, which could be a potential concern. So that's like that's the flip side, I think, to keep into consideration. There was a really nice study that came out in 2006, so it's been a little while now, but it was a double-blind, randomized controlled trial in which they fed, they eliminated all gluten and casein from children's diet, and then they spent a really long period of time actually studying this, and they uh, chose just one food to have a mock-up of. One of, the, one of them had gluten in it, and one of them didn't have gluten in it. They looked precisely the same. They tasted precisely the same. And they uh, just in introduced that one food only into that child's diet for like that week or that, that two weeks. Then they would, uh, they had like 16 different foods. They would vary which ones they were, and they had parents, uh, and they themselves also took data on the child's behavior. The experimenters didn't know which one they were giving, and the parents didn't know which one the child was receiving. That's amazing. Yes, I know. It is quite amazing. So they really took a lot of care and careful consideration in this. What a well-designed experiment. Yeah, it was super well-designed. And uh, you know, long story short, at the end of the day, they didn't see difference when they had control for all of these extra factors and the placebo effect as well. Cool. So. When you, know, when you take everything out of it, it doesn't look like just that one thing in and of itself produces a change reliably, at least for the individuals who are in this study. Um, but it, if parents feel strongly about it, I always say, well, give it a try. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. All right, cool. So let's go ahead and move on to what makes a good treatment. We've talked about a lot of uh, ineffectual and incorrect and often dangerous treatments. But what makes a good approach to treating these things? 
So some of the bullets that, uh, that, that I found came from a study by, by Newson and Hovanitz in 2005. And it really looks at you should have studies backing up what's going on in your treatment. They should have operational definition of the terms that are going to be used throughout the study. You should have some sort of reliability of measurement in what you're actually you know, purporting to, to change. The treatment has to use some sort of an actual experimental procedure. So you have to identify, hey, here are some independent and dependent variables we'll be looking at. And what might be some threats to internal validity? I mean, the things you would expect to see in a study. Uh, and those really, you know, th those are kind of the, the big pieces you want to have. If you can't find any studies that have those components to talk about whether or not the treatment that you're uh, exploring uh, does or does not make any difference, you really have to ask yourself, is this a treatment that I want to be pursuing or I want to be recommending or I want to be uh, you know, taking at face value? And the answer is no, not really if, if you, are, you know, want to be a good clinician. And there's some cool bodies that try to synthesize this. So there's like the Association for Science and Autism Treatment that is like an independent panel of people that come together. They work on synthesizing this sort of information, which is really useful and we've linked. There's also clearing houses, which uh, will, f will focus on trying to evaluate all this research and start to create these lists of like what is evidence-based. Um, I'm sure we can find one of those to link as well. And it's... Yeah. It's because it's so hard to pull through all of this information because of all the variables and all these things that we talked about. So they try to be that source. And so if anyone's trying like on the fence or a practitioner um, in any of these fields, like that's a good starting place because it gives you a good synthesized um, summary of what's going on with multiple people involved. Like it's just not one person or one potentially biased source, right? Like these people are coming from different areas to, to try to understand and curate and put this into one place for you. Awesome. All right. Well, unfortunately, we got to wrap it up there. Um, this has been so much fun. I really appreciate everyone taking the time to be here. Thank you for Miranda for joining us back uh, for, for this little thing. So uh, let everyone say you know where you can find more info about what you're doing and everything. Um, but uh, yeah, so let's go ahead and start there. Uh, if ABA Inside Track, you want to talk about where people can find more of your stuff. Yeah, well, first, thanks for all. Uh, thank you guys so much for having us on the show. It's, it's a lot. It was a lot of fun. Uh, it's, it's a great topic. Uh, we're very excited to be here for the big one zero zero for you. Congratulations! Woo thank you. Uh, if, thank you. If folks, thanks, if folks guys. didn't mind our guest appearance, they can find us at ABA Inside Track. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We do uh, it's a similar but slightly different format, more like kind of a journal club for behavior analysts. We pick a topic every week and we go over a couple key articles, usually recent stuff. Uh, so it's a good way to keep up to date on your research, which is very important for all of you. And you can find us pretty much everywhere uh, on the interwebs as ABA Inside Track. Did you mention Perfect. the continuing education? Because you all provide that, right? We do provide continuing education credits. You know, if, if you want another incentive to, to listen to us talk for an hour or so, <laughs> yes. You can find out more about that on our, on our website, which is just abainsidetrack.com. Perfect. All right. Thank you all so much for joining us. This has been Abraham. Rhino. Miranda. And all of us at ABA Inside Track. All right. Rob, Diana, and Jackie. We are Perfect. out. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.